Rio de Janeiro with a big man. Welcome to Frio de Janeiro. This is Abidiman. I'm really, really excited about this conversation with Professor Fiona Wood. She is one of Australia's most innovative and respected surgeons and researchers. And I will read to you a little bit of a blurb of some of her achievements. Professor Wood is a highly skilled plastic and reconstructive surgeon and world-leading burns specialist. She has pioneered research and technology development in burns medicine. Here are a few of her honours. In 2003, she was awarded Member of the Order of Australia, the Australian Medical Association's Contribution to Medicine Award, and West Australian of the Year. Then in 2004, she was also West Australian of the Year, following up in 2005 with the Australian of the Year title. Not title, but I guess award. (laughs) She was also voted Australia's most trusted person for six consecutive years between 2005 and 2010 and has been recognised as an Australian living treasure. This was one of the most inspiring and insightful conversations I've had the opportunity to engage in. At the time of recording this, there's a lot happening in the world right now. So I do want to dedicate this episode to the frontline workers, the people who are saving lives and putting their lives on the line. So I hope you really enjoy this conversation. Professor Fiona Wood, an absolute pleasure for you to join me on Frio de Janeiro. How are you? I'm very well indeed, thanks. And how are you? Very good. Uh, really excited to speak to you. I've been doing my research and such a fascinating journey and story to to um, explore. And first, I really want to start off by finding out what it was like growing up in Yorkshire, North England. Cold. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I mean, I, I go back uh, to see my mum. My mum's still kicking on. She's 90 this year, but I go back to visit her. And uh, I think, oh, this is such a great uh, place and it's cold, you know. And I, uh, she says, oh, when she stopped asking now if I was ever going to go back because I said not for love, no money. And, yeah, <laughs> I found myself in a very bright, vibrant place. And so, uh, you know, I'm very much a West Australian now. So growing up there all those years ago, I mean, you know, your childhood, uh, you know, it was it's fun. You know, it's great. I was one of four kids. Uh, you know, there was a lot of rough and tumble, and you know, we did a lot. My uh, folks were very focused on giving us all the opportunities they could, uh, but they were modest. I mean, you know, my dad was a coal miner, uh, and mum worked in youth work, and eventually got a job. Uh, at a quake school and that's when I, uh, my life changed because I was able to go to a school with where the exit strategy for me was uh, university and so uh, yeah, they did uh, their utmost to uh, say, give us all the opportunities that they could and, uh, and as I say I think to my mother I think you brought us up to leave uh, though she's absolutely adamant that she, you know, she's Yorkshire born and bred, and it's a God's own country. And certainly, you know, there's a lot of beauty there. There's a, a, but I always tease and say, yeah, there's a lot of beauty in those dark satanic hills. <laughs> <laughs> what were the values and lessons that you remember your parents instilled in you, which still drive you today? Oh, capacity to work and the value of work. Yeah. Uh, I don't think there's any substitute for a job well done, you know, doing the job the best you can. And 
and to use your energy wisely. And, you know, so the work ethic uh, was very strong, yeah. And, and, the, and the sort of obligation almost to do the best, to be the best version of yourself, to do the best you could. I mean, there was no quarter given in that regard. You know, there was, you know, there was no, um, no sort of, no second place, as it were. There was, yeah, there was, you know, the fear was if you're going to do it, if it's worth doing, you do it properly. While we're talking about influential figures in your life, one that um, crops up in the research I did was the name Dr. Brian Mayu. If you could expand on how influential he was in, in your career. Well, uh, I met him as uh, he was a young surgeon just starting as a consultant. He'd just finished his training and he was a consultant at St. Thomas's Hospital where I was a medical student. I started there in 1975 and I was uh, oh, very keen to be a surgeon. In fact, in my head, it was non-negotiable. It was just where and when. And, and he... Uh, he was a great mentor, and he, he gave me opportunities when others didn't, and he supported me. And, uh, yeah, I I worked for him uh, at uh, various times along my early career path, you know, as I rotated in and out of the hospital. But he was a great supporter and, you know, and a believer in, uh, in my capacity to actually do this job. Yeah, so... And those people really matter. Uh, it matters that you connect with people who believe in you because some days it's hard to do that. Sometimes <laughs> believe in yourself. <laughs> and it's nice when a few folks around you, other than your mum, uh, believe in you as well. <laughs> I want to momentarily ask you about some of the prejudice you faced uh, early on, um, speaking of believing in yourself, especially in the medical profession, which you could say uh, very male-dominated. Uh, well, there was a, a term uh, that I saw you say, you said, uh, I'm really good at embroidery. Doesn't that help when asked about being a surgeon? <laughs> so what was, you, what was your uh, attitude towards that t- type of negativity and how you uh, sort of hit it head on like that? Well, I think it's a, it was uh, an interesting time. I mean, many things have changed over the last well, gone 40 odd years, but some, unfortunately, so many things have stayed the same. But yeah, it, that whole... Uh, engagement with negative energy was something that I, I learned really early that some people have beliefs uh, that you can't you can waste an awful lot of your energy trying to persuade them otherwise then you will fail uh, for based on bigotry or lack of uh, a capacity to embrace diversity or whatever it may be and I learned to walk on by and not engage in that negative energy and find and, and actively go and find people who had a positive outlook and were embracing uh, difference. And you know, so I think that's a re- it was a really valuable lesson I learned early, that negative energy just sucks you dry and gives nothing back. And so, so my comment over my shoulder used to be, well, I'm really good at embroidery. Doesn't matter. Catch you later, and off I go. Yeah, <laughs> I wasn't going to give them my very precious time because that's all we have, and our time is precious. When did you specifically make the decision to channel your energies, your positive energies, into the specific area of burns? 
I guess that's a really, I mean, right from the word go, I was very interested in, uh, I started to be interested in plastic reconstructive surgery. Uh, it was very creative. It was exciting. They were doing lots of, of new uh, things at the time in the 70s and still, and still that goes forward. Uh, very innovative specialty. And, and, that's, and Brian May, who was a plastic and reconstructive surgeon. And so I started engaging in sort of research and you know, with uh, the teams and looking and exploring uh, their scope of work. And uh, I started seeing some particularly confronting scarring. And I started exploring this, oh, gosh, can't we do better than this? And so I sought out uh, a job. By 1985, I'd been qualified for four years. I sought out a job in a Burns Centre in the south of England that was very famous for its work in the Second World War. And uh, I went along there to see, really to explore, uh, see what it was all about and see if, if we could actually treat uh, patients in such a way that we could really reduce that, that such disfiguring and compromising scarring because it's not just what it looks like. It's, there's a far-reaching uh, impact. Uh, on your function, your movement, it's both physical and mental health. And so uh, I went down there in 1985 and I was hooked. I thought, this is very challenging. There's an awful lot we could do to learn how to do this better. And this is the space I will, I'll work in. And so that brings me right to today and I'm still doing it and still trying and we, you know, we've, the goalposts are always moving. We're getting better and better, but we've still got a long way to go. Before we actually speak about skin, skin itself and burns, I did want to go through one more part of your early career where there were moments you were doubting yourself and whether you might be cut out for this area of burns. And I wanted you to ask you how you found your way through that or what helped you to make that decision when you were doubting yourself in that specific area. I think uh, as I look back, and I, I, I know I, I, I've uh, spoken about a time in the early 90s uh, before when uh, I, uh, I followed a path uh, clinically of uh, very aggressive care of a, a patient who had a really, really expensive burn and, and then only to be faced with complications of the survival that were very confronting as well. And I thought, is this just all too hard? Because I had called in lots of favors. I coerced people. I got people interstate to help us you know, uh, with uh, various techniques. And you know, I, I'd put a lot of energy and thought and uh, reading everything around the world and trying to bring it to bear to ensure this survival and then uh, the, the consequences of in the, in the medium term were very profound and so I went you know I went uh, walk there and uh, figured that it was actually all a bit hard and it was it was my family particularly specifically my husband who who uh, said well uh, being very pragmatic, so what have you done? I said, what do you mean? He said, well, have you done your best? I said, yes. He said, well, what did everybody else do? Did they do the best? And I said, yeah, yeah. 
So well, what can you ask of anybody else other than that? And, and that's, I think, um, really insightful be, uh, and also very simple. And there's a lot of things, you know, those lessons, you know, you often get so far down the rabbit hole to see things and to see straight. And often the, you know, the rationalization isn't complex. And, you know, if you have done your best, then that, that, that's as far as you can go. And then the next step is, well, how do I do better? And that may, I mean, you can translate that into every facet of life, whether personal, professional, sporting, or whatever. You know, this is it. I have emptied my tank. I have done everything I, I can here today. And that's when I really learned that the key to all this, and the key, just generally, I reckon, is learning from today to make tomorrow better. And uh, that's certainly uh, uh, something I try and live by. Uh, to try and always uh, drive that learning so that we can uh, expand the boundaries of knowledge or, or uh, you know, run faster, jump higher, whatever it may be. Thank you for sharing that. And I really want to move into the area of skin, which I know uh, you're extremely passionate about, can speak hours on this topic. <laughs> but be- before we move into the... <laughs> yes, it's, this one's a carefully crafted question. It's uh, before we move into the breakthroughs that you were involved with, what do we know about why skin responds as it does to trauma like burns? Well, that is a really very interesting question that uh, you know, could take us down uh, a rabbit hole that's uh, contained my interest for over thirty years because <laughs> we don't actually we don't actually know why uh, at the vel- at the cellular functioning level why they are triggered the cells to behave in in certain people in such a way that they become uh, they drive that profound scar response. And it's not just that scar response locally, it's also the skin has an impact on the rest of our body systems. And so actually, as we've uh, researched uh, the scar, we've become to understand that the injury is not just local, but it is actually impacts throughout your body systems. And that is, it's extraordinarily uh, interesting, of course, and important, but important more, because if we understood the mechanism uh, then we could uh, develop new treatments. And that's the space I've been working in now for quite some time. It's trying to understand the interaction of the skin with all the other body systems. And, you know, and it's complex. Uh, uh, but there are opportunities that to, uh, to change uh, the way this, this sort of style of healing, for want of a better term, so that uh, you can reduce the scarring, but can you reduce the impact of this insult uh, across your heart, your lungs, your brain, and uh, so that will, and that brings us back to this in, this fascinating interaction with the you know we take our skin for granted; it replaces its surface every six to eight weeks, but it is an exquisitely complex organ that's our interface into the world. It's our first line of defence from uh, invasion of bacteria, viruses, uh, etc., and yeah, and it's responsive to sunlight, to temperature, uh, to our, our moods and feelings, you know. So, you know, why do we blush? And, and, and so on it goes. And so I see the skin as a, as a, as a neural, it's like the eye, the tongue, the, the, hear, the ear, you know. It's a, 
it's a receptor of all this information. But more than that, it's not just the receptor and the processor of all this information, it actually drives uh, responses of the rest of the body uh, to function either optimally or in a negative fashion. You, you did say I could go on about this for a long time. <laughs> oh, of course, it's uh, so fascinating to hear. Well, I would like to now speak about the, the nervous system and that's relation to healing because when, when did you start to find out that the nervous system was so involved? Is it relatively new breakthrough? Well, that's actually is an interesting area. It takes me way back to being a medical student. And I, uh, in the middle of my medical degree, I did a, an extra degree, a, a, what we call a BMed Sci, Bachelor of Medical Science, and uh, equivalent of that. And uh, what mine uh, focused on was anatomy, but more specifically, uh, anatomy, neuroanatomy, the anatomy of the brain how the brain configuration changes from worms to elephants and, uh, and everything in between and how it changed over uh, from an evolutionary perspective uh, as we kind of came out of the trees and, and just stood back on two legs and our eyes came forward and away we went running across the savannah. And so that involved anthropology and physical anthropology and neuroanatomy. So I was fascinated in this area way back then. And the first publication of, that I was, uh, like, I drove and led uh, was a piece of work that I did at the Sherrington School of Physiology. And he was a very famous physiologist who did lots of work, uh, oh gosh, well over a century ago now, and his name was given to the uh, physiology uh, school in our medical school and I worked there with uh, one of the other young scientists and we investigated if the the nerves within the skin were changed when we used tissue expansion. Now tissue expansion at that time in the sort of uh, was just came in in the late 70s early 80s and it's a technique where you bury a balloon underneath the skin with a, a valve and each week you come back and you inject into that valve sterile saline water and over a period of three months or so you can you blow up the skin of like a pregnant abdomen uh, gets bigger and bigger and bigger but you create new skin and it's terrific if you if a, a child for example has had a burn on the part of their scalp and they've no hair. Then you can put the balloon under the area where there's hair and you blow that balloon up over three months and then you remove the scar and you can repair uh, that area with skin that you've that has grown uh, in response to this balloon, but it's got the same characteristics of the scalp. So it looks like a normal scalp because it is. And so wow. we were, at the time, we were told that that would all be fine and dandy and, and great, but the nerves would all be stretched apart. And the nerves would, were, uh, would their, their sort of capacity to feel would be reduced. Does that make sense? So yes. if you stretched it all out, then you wouldn't feel it in such detail. 
and that didn't ring true with me. Yeah, and I, you know, I went on to test my own pregnant abdomen going up and down like a, a balloon that's blown up and down for six times. You know, so <laughs> I knew that you didn't lose your sensitivity. And so we did this piece of work where we demonstrated for the first time uh, that there was nerve plasticity within the skin construct. And, you know, at the time, nerve brain plasticity was only just come, becoming talked about. I mean, now we understand that, the, you know, the books like The Brain that changes itself and you know, things like that. We understand how the plasticity of the nervous system and adaptable, how adaptable it is in response to different uh, insults or changes. But it, at that stage, it was considered that the skin nervous system was static and we demonstrated that it wasn't. And that was my first uh, publication in the 80s. And... Uh, so it's always been in my head to, uh, to investigate the, and, and under, try and understand the impact on the nervous system with our burn injuries and burn injury healing. So fast forward to, oh gosh, I think it was 2004, we had a, a medical student who's called James Anderson, who's now a consultant, but he did a, his BMED side and he tested patients who'd been long after they were burned. And he found that in the areas they were burnt, they couldn't feel so much so well as their comparative non-burnt area, like the back of your hand, the back of your hand that hadn't been burnt, you could feel better than the back of the hand that you hadn't been burnt on. And you think, yeah, that makes sense. But what was really interesting was the nerve density was the same in both hands. And we realized wow. that the nerve density through his work, was reduced in the non-burn areas. So if you had an 80% body surface area burn, in the 20% that you weren't burnt, your nerve density went down. And that started of getting back into the saddle. And so since then, we've done lots of work around trying to understand this interface between the nervous system and the skin as, uh, and during its healing process. And we know that there's changes at the spinal cord level, at the brain level, uh, but we don't, we, we've still got a long way to understand why, how, and can we actually use that knowledge to improve the quality of healing. And last year, one of our team got a, awarded for the best clinical trial in the Burns International Burns meeting in India. I think that was last year. Gosh, it's hard to tell these days, isn't it, with everything being cancelled this year. <laughs> Yeah. And his his work was putting uh, an electrical stimulation in, in the dressings of a wound that was healing and demonstrated that you could reduce the swelling and improve the healing by uh, that electrical stimulation. So there's so much we've got to do and lots of different ways, whether we look at our brain, whether you look at the nerves along the, the root, whether you look at the nerves growing back into the wound, and all of the above. So there's lots to do. That is incredible, and uh, wanted to get, want to actually get into some uh, future developments a little bit later on. Uh, I want to go back to what was there before for for burns victims before spray-on skin existed. Well, the spray-on skin cells is only one part of what we do. I mean, yes, we started that uh, a long time ago, Marie Stone and myself, but. Uh, we looked at people who were around the world in the early 80s, started growing skin. 
but they were only able to grow the waterproof layer of the skin, the outer layer. Uh, and the inner layer, the tough layer, uh, people, other groups started producing um, scaffolds that, were, that simulated skin. And then, uh, so we came along in the, uh, 1990, and, uh, to, and then I met Marie in 1993, and looked at the current state of the technology and thought, well, well, how can we do this better? And so what we do with the spray and skin cells is we take harvest cells from the engine room of the skin. The skin is in two major layers, the waterproof outer layer and the tough inner layer. And in between that is the, the, the engine room, the cells that are turning over all the time. If we harvested those, uh, they're the cells that you can grow into a, a very thin sheet and you can use to transfer like a, a, a skin graft, or you can take longer and you can make it more complex and thicker. But that takes time in the laboratory. And I was always faced with a patient in very vulnerable from, from an infection and point of view, and also in great pain. And the best way to solve that problem is to, is to make sure that the skin heals as quickly as possible. So it's got a very long story short, very quickly, by 1994, 95, we were spraying skin cells on uh, so that we could uh, use those skin cells from the engine room and spray them over the wound to cover larger areas. But we also need understand that we have to change the way we salvage the uh, tissue underneath or use traditional skin grafts as well. And so, as I say, it's part of a, like a, we have a toolbox and of the different techniques that we can use. And certainly, uh, I've operated uh, on two patients a day, one in the adults, one of the children, so we used the kit that we've, uh, we've invented uh, in those two cases. But we also used uh, traditional techniques as well. So it gives us an opportunity to cover much larger areas with a small donor site, because it's all your skin to you, and so we only take a little bit and we cover big areas. But it's only suitable for the thinner burns. Uh, the burns are, uh, when it gets deeper, that's when we use traditional techniques and mesh the skin grafts wide and then spray the cells over to, to fade out the mesh pattern and improve the scar. And so it's, um, it's a long, hard road. I mean, we put it in a kit and we it's a point of care. We take the, the kit is at the bedside in the operating room while we're operating and we uh, harvest the cells at site and spray them directly on. And we use the body as a tissue culture environment. So the cells are uh, put on in the best condition possible from a non-injured area. And then they are able to migrate across the surface and sort of um, develop a, a new epidermis. This is a question from a friend who, when she found out that I was going to get to speak to you, she's involved in the medical field and had a question about about this uh, spray-on skin, and it was around the extent that the product assists healing process for varying levels of burns. So let's say 10% versus 80%. Is it something that you use in, in all situations? Yeah, yeah, I would. Yes, we use it in uh, all, all situations because it means we can cover larger areas and so uh, with a, a smaller donor site. And certainly in the, some of the smaller burns, we would use it if they're not as deep so that we can uh, get rapid healing. Because if, if we can get the burn wound healed in less than 10 days, 14 days, 
we've got it somewhere around about, a, a, well, less than 10 days, it's 4% chance of a scarring. But if it's 21 days, uh, then it's up to 70% chance of scarring. And so the speed matters. And so, yes, we use it across, uh, across the board in the, the surface areas, but we need to use it in association with, uh, with other techniques when it get, the burn gets deeper. Uh, believe it or not, sometimes you can't believe everything you hear on the internet or read on the internet. And I wanted to just clarify this one with you, but uh, sometimes it's fascinating what the background story is to how something has uh, become a breakthrough. And is it true that there was a throwaway line by someone in the lab who was saying that we should just try to spray this stuff onto the skin? And that's how the spray on skin was created. Well, Marie and I were, were working pretty hard. At, uh, we'd already uh, gone from growing sheets and to harvesting cells uh, after about five days in culture. Uh, we were putting the, the cells on making like blisters with dressings. And uh, we're not sure. It was what Maria or myself, we're just sitting in the lab and thinking, God, geez, you know, we should just spray this on. <laughs> and that's what, and then we both went a separate ways to Rockaby Road and get the pharmacy and the art, Jackson's Arts the shop and then to the anesthetic trolley hair spray throat spray nose spray any spray you like and we did a whole series of experiments with the, all the different spray techniques and we found one uh, that we still use which is a, a nozzle we just clip on and use now which i've used today <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome the the application of it, I want to discuss crisis responses, which have been um, you know spoken about. But I did see a really emotional speech that you delivered in 2012, which was the 10-year memorial of the Bali bombings. Looking back through the tunnel of time, which is a phrase that you used in the speech, the tunnel of time, how do you reflect on that crisis response? I remember uh, uh, that particular speech that today I don't remember what I said but I remember I remember walk uh, I, I don't I I am not uh, a, a person that reads I will you know stand and tell stories and explain but I don't read uh, a speech and that particular morning in 2012 I was in Canberra and I had contact, connected with one of my kids who was in the military at the time, and I said, oh, you can be my plus one, and I've got to go and do this. And I've written this speech. She said, oh, mum, you never do that. I said, yeah, no, but I just feel it's just going to be a bit tough today. And so I sat on the podium while some very eminent people read speeches, and then a, a heart music was playing whilst all... Uh, photographs were shown of those who didn't come home from their holiday in Bali and I was the last speaker I remember walking across the stage knowing that I would not read and that the people who lost their loved ones and were all there they were the ones that I needed to honour and however I felt it was a drop in the ocean compared to how they felt about the whole business. And so on live TV, that's what I delivered. And I think if you've, you've got, you've seen, taken the time to listen to it, it is clearly from the heart, yeah? 
and I think it exemplifies uh, my feelings of, of the 10 years previously that it was a privilege to help and to be trained to do what, not just what I do, but to, we were trained to respond. We had spent a lot of time planning uh, a, a burns re disaster response in Western Australia and had uh, uh, been connected across Australia and uh, with our colleagues in the Australian New Zealand Burns Association and co collectively we had written a, disaster, a response plan, a disaster response plan that had gone to the Health Minister's Advisory Council in July of that of the 2002. We were supported in doing it by Woodside and we'd exercised it um, using uh, uh, exercise on North, North Ranking A platform. And, and so it was all agreed to and the health ministers from all the states and territories agreed to it thinking it was a good idea. And then in October of 2002, uh, we did it, we responded. And so our, the window to our world was open and people in globally saw what we were doing and that response is like many things. If you thought about it and you practiced it, you'll do better. And so, so it was a privilege to be able to do what we do and do it for so many people when they're in such a tragic need of our, of our care and help. And it was happening not just here, but of course across the whole of Australia. And with the team, uh, similar teams to our Burn Service of Western Australia, stepping up all over the, uh, the country. So when I think about it, I think yeah, it, it was an extraordinary time to see so much good and so much positive energy. It was tragic that it had to come from such a profound negative. With the things you've seen and the suffering that people have endured, I wonder what it's taught you about the human spirit. Oh, gosh, the human spirit. I think that's a fascinating, fascinating subject. Because we all ebb and flow, our, you know, our energies ebb and flow and our, our, you know, the various ways we express it. But, uh, and I've seen people have what can only be described as uh, you know, a nightmare experience <clears throat> in a burn injury and then come through and be stronger and have, have more fulfilled lives afterwards. And such, you know, we've discussed this over the years and, you know, could we bottle this to help all those who are overwhelmed by it? You know? and, you know, and it is an overwhelming business. And so... One of uh, my colleagues, who uh, Lisa Martin, is now Dr. Martin. She's uh, got her PhD, and her PhD subject was specifically post-traumatic growth. Can we understand post-traumatic growth such that we can use that uh, to support and help those coming through uh, various traumas? And that has been very insightful in how people cope and how we develop resilience and you know, can we train resilience and where our personalities come in, intersect with our, you know, the environmental stressors, with, you know, the, the sort of the push and pull of life <clears throat> and what makes people take that on and come through stronger and what makes people just sit back and, and suffer, you know, and... So I think it is a fascinating area. Again, 
you know, very challenging to research, very challenging to, tr- to treat and care, but that means it's all the, the need is there, you know, it's a great need. And I think look, just looking around right now and seeing the various real levels of uh, resilience in, in people, uh, you know, professionally and personally uh, in relation to COVID uh, pandemic, yeah, it's been fascinating to me because there is such a range of responses. Yeah, as many res- different responses as there are people. Yeah, and so, but but some are quite negative. Some are quite not negative, of course, but it is. Yeah, but some are quite personally destructive, and you know, and we know we've got a problem in that sphere and the mental health side, and certainly we do in the burns as well, and trying to un unravel and trying to understand what's going on so we can help you know that's another life's work but one we're sort of we're taking on because there's no challenge too big (laughs) Uh, (laughs) and it it is but it's fascinating you know if we can just uh, help a little bit here and there then then we've we've taken a step in the right direction i want to move into sport physical activity exercise a little bit and there's a really good jumping off point here because you've been a good, a huge advocate of exercise in the burns healing process. Can you tell us about the research that's demonstrated the connections between those? Well, it started really early in my space. You know, I think you know, I saw people fade away, waste away in bed. You know, and we're, burns is inflammatory. You need nutritional support. You need you know, infection control support, you need pain relief, you need, you know, you need people around you that are going to help you learn how to move again, you need the surgeons, and, you know, it's a, I feel like a Chinese plate juggler sometimes, you know, and there's lots of plates. <laughs> and one of those plates that uh, uh, we were able to really build uh, in our West Australian birth service is, is the exercise and the mobilization. And I was very fortunate because I was over, uh, visiting Queensland, oh gosh, early in the 90s, and I met a young physio called Dale Edgar, uh, and he was clearly uh, interested in burns, and he was clearly uh, uh, a light mind, you know, and I said, well, if you could get yourself to WA, we'd give you a job, and uh, we've been uh, working with Dale for well over 20 years now, and he's the senior physio in burns, and in innovation, and he does. Uh, he's a, you know, he's done his PhD, and he's done great work. But it all stemmed with like, get people. Can you get someone standing up and out of bed before a surgery, within 24, 48 hours of being, uh, I mean, a major burn? And the answer, quite clearly, now is yes. And so we have a, a, a gym embedded in the burns unit, and it is well utilised. Yeah, everybody, they is expected to be mobilized within 24, 48 hours of their burn injury. And then after their surgery, they have 24 hours absolutely, often 48, but then it's a mobilization and exercise bikes, resistance. And one of our uh, PhDs just uh, submitted now did a trial looking at adding resistance training in addition to the sort of mobilization and, uh, and other the sort of fitness-based work we were doing. And it's just fascinating because if the more you move, the less swollen you are, the more the less pain relief you need, the quicker you get better. You know, so we've done lots of research in this area, and now we're working on how we can translate 
this into different facets and can we look at exercise later on after a period of time post-injury? Can we still impact with an exercise program to improve uh, that, does that improve that physical fitness to reduce the systemic inflammation and the secondary problems around heart disease, etc.? And that's where we're working now. Can we improve uh, your fitness before a, a routine surgical procedure? Because we know that the fitter you go in, the fitter you'll come out with less complications. And so we're, we're sort of advocates of this, uh, you know, prehabilitation as well as rehabilitation. And early exercise for us isn't six weeks after your injury. Early exercise for us is 48 hours after your injury. So that's a bit of a speciality of the house. And Dale, a few years ago, was uh, named the the Burns Physio of the World. He was he was he had a, was awarded at our international Burns meeting with the medal as the best as a physio of yeah, great uh, capacity and intellect and all of the positive things you can imagine. So he had international recognition. I'd love for you to touch upon the role sport has played in your life, uh, from being uh, interested in sprinting early on to now your involvement in trampoline gymnastics. Uh, how does one bounce into those disciplines, to use a pun? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, yeah, my, my dad had a, a very short period of uh, playing for Nottingham Forest, a soccer player. Uh, my mum uh, uh, was a PTI, physical training instructor in the Women's Air Force, before uh, <coughs> she uh, went back to Yorkshire, uh, and uh, so when they they they're pretty sporty pair, yeah. They both left school at thirteen and fourteen, yeah. So, they're, but they there's part of my our upbringing was sport. You know, my uh, one of my brothers was a, a boxing blue at Cambridge, another was uh, in, got as far as England until twenty three. He was the back row in the rugby union. He uh, was the captain of. Uh, United London Hospitals and universities, I'm sorry. And all. So he was in uh, Saracens. He played back row for Saracens in London for a long time. And uh, my sister is a physio teacher <laughs> and now runs the trampoline club, as you know. Uh, and so it was part of our upbringing. And for me, for my children, you know, it was all, you know, it, 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 being fit and healthy, it matters, you know. It matters, but it, it makes you... you your, your capacity to, to do is intimately linked with your level of fitness in my and I've been fortunate that I've been able to stay fit and certainly with my kids uh, I, I, I do say sometimes that the extended school day we've, we've had sport organised for them before and after school every day of different kinds because myself and my husband were working and he's a surgeon as well so we needed a longer school day and so, yeah, uh, it was very uh, efficient babysitting, uh, and uh, they were able to. I think all of them have represented Western Australia in sport, and two have represented Australia. Uh, uh, one in trampolining, and one in uh, the triathlon. And so, uh, it is integral into our daily <laughs> uh, life, and uh, and so all the different sports. Goodness me! I've did. I was. In, I'm, I'm. And I'm one of these people that you can't criticise unless you're prepared to step up and do something about it. And so, if you want, if you want to do, do find somebody organising t-ball 
or uh, you know, uh, the tri- I was involved, heavily involved in triathlon for a very long time, and did a, I've even been on rugby tour with one of my kids in the under 14s to Nudgy College in Queensland. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I was very hands-on, uh, uh, and yeah, so they did. With having six kids, they, that they covered a lot of different sports, and uh, with the trampolining, uh, myself and another mum, who what started peak trampoline ten years ago now, uh, uh, because we I, I, I we were training the uh, he was training up at High Flyer, uh, and it was just too far to drive, and we were, she was late to school. Uh, almost every day because we'd go up there early in the morning and then have to face the freeway coming back. And I had a mutiny from the other kids because they refused <laughs> to drive her. She's the young. <laughs> and so, yeah, and so we en- ended up starting a new club close by. And it was very close by because uh, Peak Trampoline initially was right next to John 23rd where the kids were at school. And it was in Montgomery Hall, which is an old derelict hall on the hill now it's an old. It's been redeveloped as an old folks' home, I think. But there was a big old hall in there, so we cleaned out all the the broken glass and uh, pigeons and a few unsavoury <laughs> characters. And uh, uh, we uh, put in a trampoline. We bought second hand from over east, and away we went. Uh, and so. I'm you know, still, of course, heavily involved because uh, my sister runs the club and I'm the chair of the club now. Uh, and uh, I, I think it's been a really interesting experience for me because it's a sport that, you know, it caters for lots of different personality types. And I've watched my sister, Nicola, actually produce something quite special uh, with coaching pyramids and young kids coming through who uh, can volunteer and then they end up with a part-time job and then in leadership roles. And you know, I think it's a great community. It's, you know, what she has built is, of course, with all our help and support and all, but you know, it's a very vibrant uh, uh, community that I'm really looking forward to getting back. Next week, I think we start with uh, <laughs> the kids coming in. You know, so it, it's terrific. You know, and uh, it's it is genuinely the trampolining has gen- been genuinely sport for all, and that for me, well, Evie for uh, at a particular time uh, gave up, uh, uh, and I still stayed involved because I believed in the whole ethos of it, with, with that you can actually provide an environment. For everyone, and I'm also interested in what's going on in their brains. <laughs> I'm, re- I'm fascinated yes. by how they can twist and turn like that without going dizzy, and the biomechanics of it all. So I'm looking forward to uh, developing peak trampoline into a research facility <laughs> on lots of levels, sport <laughs> or biomechanics, neurophysiology. Maybe that's my retirement plan. <laughs> <laughs> On your ongoing quest as well to make the difference in people's lives, I've read you mentioning that uh, Scarless Hearing, sorry, Scarless Healing is the Holy Grail. Is there a new research uh, being undertaken or new technologies, uh, new ways to treat burn survivors that's specifically exciting you right now? A bit of a watch this space. Uh, 
Well, yes. I mean, it's a, it's a journey, as you say, is that new breakthroughs right now. But we, there's journeys all the time. We, like with the spray-on skin cells, we're we're now uh, trying to spray on uh, all aspects of the skin. So we're looking at we're developing a point of care 3D uh, printer that can print the framework as well as the cells. And we started uh, that work almost two years ago now. And um, the the printer is uh, arrived. At Christmas time, uh, it's a great Christmas present. It arrived from uh, our colleagues in New South Wales, uh, Sydney, and uh, they came over. We set it everything up, and we did our first experiments. And then we're sitting with beta breath. They were really positive. I, it was Fiona versus the printer. Thank goodness the printer was better. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, we're working on that as soon as. Uh, we are we can get back into the lab in a, that in after our current situation, uh, and but that's actually only one facet because when you try to rebuild, we've got to remove the dead tissue. So there is this thing called the eye knife, intelligent knife, uh, which which there are about eight in the world, and they're being in trials in research trials looking at uh, as they cut through with a hot cautery, they can. To see whether the cell is a cancer cell or not, and in real time looking at the chemistry. And so, what we're uh, doing is looking at the chemistry of trauma, of burn trauma. So, can we remove just exactly what we need to, but leave everything that will be survivable in place? So that eye knife will link with the three D printer, and then the, to link the two, we need to image the surface so that we can print the right surface and shape and so that's a lot of data analytics and so I, I said that in 1991 when I started as the burn service director I inherited a multidisciplinary team of allied health nursing uh, uh, and medical uh, surgeons now uh, I work in an interdisciplinary team with chemists with engineers with data analytics um, and and Mark Fear is the scientist I work with now who started working in basically in Marie's uh, role many years ago now, well over 10 years. And uh, and he's a cell biology and sort of understanding all that. He's the main driver of our research and so in the basic science space. And we work together with companies that, right, okay, we've got, we're working together trying to get the eye knife and then the imaging, and then the 3D printing, but then we've got to get it integrated without a scar. And that brings us to other work we're doing with companies around how we can manipulate the chemistry during that healing process by slow release uh, of uh, molecules, of drugs. And so we're doing trials in that space as well. And so, yeah, short answer, is there something going on? Absolutely so much and I keep I, I'm saying oh guys you, you've got to keep going you're not quick enough because I want to know the answer before I finish <laughs> it's all right for you you've got more time. Yeah. yeah so no it's exciting times the technology is just breathtaking and yeah it's exciting times uh, my friend who's involved in the medical field had that question another one actually which is around what's the future of Burns medical research uh, she's more asking, is there further to go and how close are we to what could be the end of our capability in terms of improving recovery and lessening scars or is there innovation that gives us endless possibilities? 
I think the innovation is, you know, I'm an endless possibility kind of brain mindset. Uh, and uh, not uh, many, I suppose it, over a decade, actually, quite a long time ago now, we uh, treated a young boy who had a burn injury, a massive, massive burn injury. And he did really, really well, only to die of a rare cancer some time later. And we asked the question here in Western Australia, does surviving burn injury influence the rest of your life and increase your risk of, of things such as cancer? And so one of the strengths of Western Australia is data linkage, and we linked all the data uh, from 1988 to currently. And we, uh, we've ha we have a profound knowledge of the impact that burn injury has on uh, lives going forward. And so the one aspect, is to reduce the scarring and improve the physical and mental functioning. And the next aspect is to mitigate against that, that rest of body response to the burn injury. And so we're a long way from the... the I, I won't be throwing my arms up and saying we've got to the end of the race for a very, very long time, and I don't think we will see uh, such a, a, a final <coughs> a finish line really in anything because there's always something you can do better there's always an innovation around the corner and and that's really a mindset that i take to the table because otherwise we'd still be you know in the dark ages and all we can all learn from today and make tomorrow better we can all be have that innovative mindset and think well how can i just do that a little bit better and oh that's a lot better and so I think there's opportunities whichever way we look. And so I don't think, I used to think I would be, you know, I was in a situation of an Everest climb. And at some point I will put my flag on the top of the Everest or not. But now I understand quite clearly. It's just a, a very, very long ultra marathon that has no end. And as long as there are people on this planet, there'll be people that innovate. And there'll be things, opportunities to treat our patients better. And uh, our, our job is to harness those to reduce the suffering. When you became Australian of the Year in 2005, it's a title that has such gravity to it. But I'm very interested in what it involves insofar as your requirements over time or uh, the rights extended to you. Like, What is the dimension of, of being an Australian of the Year in terms of those things we might not know of? Wow, it's like nothing you can ever imagine. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I still feel like it's a bubble, you know, a bubble I went, uh, I, I, it was extraordinary that uh, I, I thought I was busy until then and then I knew what busy was. It was a whole different dimension because <laughs> I, I felt very, I mean, I thought, wow, I've got to work really hard now to justify all this faith that's been put in me, you know. And so I travelled the length and breadth of Australia. I saw so much, learnt so much, you know, speaking to different people, having all this, you know, understanding of, you know, people's problems, people's highlights, great good news stories. And it's an ambassador for for good news stories, really. You know, that's, what, that's how, what I tried to make it, you know, to, to share what was good in our society, in our communities. And so, and to understand that we're all 
oh gosh, I've nearly said we're all in this together. Have we heard that too much these days? (laughs) Definitely. Yeah, but we are, you know. The decisions we make as individuals actually ramify to others around us. And so we have to be cognizant of that and respectful and be considered in the decisions we make uh, of our, from ourselves. And, and, and then, you know, the decisions we make around our health and wellness, our education, the education of our kids, you know, the, the way we support people or not, you know, why not? And so I think we have a lot of human energy that is untapped and we need to really focus on that support piece and you know there's a lot to be said for kindness and that basic human kindness uh, yeah I, I see people happy and more productive than those of miserable you know, so there's a message there you know in that spreading a bit of kindness is works on so many levels I'm very, very mindful of your time. So uh, we w- we'll move into a couple of quick-fire questions. Uh, these are ones that are going to be very interesting. Uh, the first one is, what is a book or books you've most given as a gift and why? Or what are the one to three books that you have greatly that have greatly influenced you in your life? Whoa, whoa. I give books a lot, you know. I give books, uh, like, every Christmas. I always go to the bookshop um, and buy books for people and... All the kids, everybody gets books every year. And if I just see a book that a whole, some like, oh, my friends would like that, I'll get it. Yeah. And so I'm a great uh, lover of books. One book I, I think uh, is, that's interesting that I've given a few people over the years is Richard uh, uh, Dawkins' The Selfish Gene. I read that in 1976, I do think it was. It was as an as a academic exercise. It was part of my extra degree. And basically, the selfish gene is about uh, uh, these names of knowledge that we pass on generation to generation. So it really uh, inspired me to explore uh, in a way that his subsequent book haven't. Uh, so I've given that to a few people. One child book uh, that I read in childhood was Elidor. Alan, oh gosh, I can't remember the author. Alan, oh, I can't remember. But Elidor was science fiction, going through uh, the tunnel of time, going through a wormhole sort of equivalent between different scenarios. A little bit like The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, only uh, a little harsher because the wardrobe was in the north of England in a harsh area. <laughs> so I resonated with... Uh, but, you know, books... Uh, apart, I'm just sitting in the study here, just looking around. There's books everywhere. You know? And so I think reading is became a real thing for me as a kid. I was from a, a thirst for knowledge, but also for stories. But for experiences, seeing how other people did things, yeah. Everybody's got a, yeah. When you feel overwhelmed or unfocused or have lost your focus temporarily, what do you do? Or have there been any questions that have been helpful that you ask yourself? I think it's it's uh, it's very easy to get overwhelmed, and there's not a lot of things that can overwhelm us. And it's step back, 
deep breathe and take the elephant in the light. I'm a great one for trying to swallow it whole, but you know, it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, so it's taking elephant in small bites. Yeah. And still keeping making forward progress and rejoicing in that forward progress. Professor Fiona Wood, is there a message you'd like to leave the audience with or anything you'd like to promote of what you're doing right now? Well, well, the, our work is uh, always on the Fiona Wood Foundation website and that, please feel, go and have a look and, and uh, browse around uh, and see what we're up to and if, um, email, contact us and if you want to know more from that perspective. But, you know, I feel very fortunate in my life. I get up in the morning and I enjoy what I do. My father worked to go down the coal mine year in, year out, and he hated it. And that's the instilled that in us. Get up in the morning and work hard enough so that you have the choice to do something you love. And I think that's not... I've been very privileged to achieve that goal. It's not a bad goal to find something that you love and pursue it. Professor Fiona Wood, I can't thank you enough for your time. And we will put in all of that information in the show notes so people can reach out to your foundation. Thank you very, very much. It's a pleasure. Take care. Thanks a lot. Hey, everyone. Wherever you are in the world, thanks heaps for listening to Frio de Janeiro. You can visit the show website, abidimam.com, A-B-I-D-I-M-A-M. For all of the show goodies, you can subscribe, leave a review. I appreciate it very much. And until the next episode, keep smiling, keep scoring.